The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Today we bring you the fifth and final episode of Beyond Us, a mini-series made in association with Essentia Foundation. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website iai.tv. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Us series by the Institute of Art and Ideas. My name is Bernardo Kestrup. And my name is Fred Motzer. Throughout the Beyond Us series, we've explored four concepts that underpin and define the modern world. Knowledge, competition, language, and growth. And in each episode, we've been joined by a leading thinker to help us and hopefully our audience see each concept in a new light. We've had Rebecca Goldstein on knowledge, Donald Hoffman on competition, Jennifer Hornsby on language, and Mo Galdat on growth. And in this bonus episode, Bernardo and I are going to be reflecting on the series as a whole, discussing the views of our guests and seeing if we have come to any new conclusions of our own. There's a great big gap between what we can prove, uh, you know, mathematically, logically, uh, you know, a priori proof, um, the empirical evidence we have, and our view of the world, what we need in order to orient ourselves in this reality. So, Fred, in our discussion with uh, Rebecca, um, I think the points that uh, shone through mostly uh, were uh, an emphasis on skepticism, the idea that uh, to have reliable knowledge, we have to doubt what we think we know, we have to question what we think we know, sort of kick the tires of knowledge, so to say, so we don't fool ourselves because of our you know, wishful thinking or you know, gullible tendencies or whatever. Uh, I think that's a good point. She emphasized uh, reason as a means of transcendence. And I think that was also a very strong point she made, the idea that uh, our reason uh, 
can help us transcend the ordinary limits of human knowledge, that through uh, reasoning we can go beyond immediate experience and extract conclusions about things like, you know, the depth of the universe, black holes and quasars and the microscopic world of quantum phenomena. Uh, that would otherwise be uh, uh, unreachable uh, to our knowledge. So she emphasized that as well. And one thing that I thought, <clears throat> but that's my own opinion, a little less mm, on the mark, so to say, but, uh, but that's, again, my own opinion, is that um, she came across as uh, indicating that uh, feeling and intuition um, are not reliable. Um, she established a contrast. She said, okay, it's feeling and intuition are less reliable than reason and empirical experimentation or science. Uh, of course, there is some truth to that, but I, I felt that uh, she underestimated uh, the importance of uh, reason and intuition. How do you see that? Yeah, well, thank you for asking, Bernardo. I think it was uh, quite interesting for me to see that uh, Rebecca associated transcendence in the development of, of knowledge as something that is, um, yeah, a, a augmentation through the mental faculty that, yeah, perhaps brings us what I often say beyond the curtain. Um, that is an interesting view that from my experience, I cannot really confirm that it works that way. Uh, what I know about that what we express knowledge in words and numbers is that it's a strong tool to communicate and to develop knowledge, which is very useful as we see in all kinds of applications in, in society. But uh, on the other hand, I'm aware that everything that expresses itself in words is always following some information that anticipates the expression and the way I look at uh, the feeling and the intuitive faculty for me is very reliable because it is the inner world that brings my consciousness to certain things that I by uh, at a later instant can express in words. So Yes, in that respect, I have a different view. It is important to listen to the products of our mind that are expressed mentally, but as important and for me even more important is that that what comes to our feeling uh, is, is a, a very important component in our decision-making process and experience. There is a, a tendency in our cultural ethos today, and I think since the late 19th century, um, to, to neglect feeling and intuition, isn't there? To, to me, it's, this sounds like um, a psychic amputation. I mean, our psyche has many functions or faculties, as you refer to them, uh, um, not only reasoning. Uh, we do have intuition, we do have feelings, emotions, things that can inform our lives. Sometimes uh, you can't really coherently argue why you think a certain thing, but your intuition is screaming <laughs> that that is right. And sometimes it's important to listen to that, isn't it? Even if it's not entirely reliable, uh, it shouldn't be neglected, should it? No, I, uh, no, I, say, I, I said it is very important. And 
what I observe is, yes, as children and also later on, we are trained to trust uh, our, our mental faculty. We have uh, schools, kindergarten, university, everything that teaches us in, in the use of the mental faculty, but also in the trust of that use. And its sister, the feeling and intuitive faculty, yes, we allow it to be there, but we see perhaps the mental faculty as the super league, while the feeling faculty is something nice, is like Saturday late afternoon soccer playing, you know? And uh, I would uh, definitely uh, invite everybody to to allow more trust in your feelings because it's the inner voice. And indeed, me the mental products can be shared. And that's also why it is so important. And feeling is much more difficult to share in words. It can be, it can be shared in songs, in playing music, sometimes in art. It's, it's wordless, but not worthless. How do we do that, Fred? How do we get to a point where we can listen enough to the, to the intuitive and the feeling faculty to a point where we can rely on them and not be fooled uh, by them? I think by training our brain to calm down, to reduce our stress, to listen to classical music, to learn to meditate. And those techniques have helped you? Those techniques have helped me. And not all the time, but uh, most of the time, Walking in nature can help too. I confess to having difficulty. I mean, I, I'm entirely with you in, in, in my opinion about what's going on. I think we should not amputate two uh, extraordinarily important and I would say even more fundamental, more primordial mental uh, or psychic faculties and rely entirely on reasoning. Um, but I have difficulties uh, sorting through what my intuition and my feelings tell me sometimes. Uh, sometimes I think uh, they are fooling me, uh, but I do have a sense for when it's reliable. There, there is a, um, how to say, an ineffable quality to an intuition when it's the reliable one. It's like you just know it. And even if you tell yourself a story, well, I can't rely on it. It's ju it just comes with a certain weight. That is very difficult to resist, and to me, that's that's the the hallmark of reliable intuition when it comes with that force of trust, you know, that's a certain gravitas to it. Yeah, thank you, and I also struggle with it many, many, many times a day. But my experience over the decades is, as long as the intuition is an intuition that serves more in the whole and all, the more reliable it is. When it is a more uh, like a, a feeling of fear, closer to the ego, it's that you have to be on your guard. Yes, it might serve you on an individual level, but uh, the, the richness and the depth of the feeling is bigger when it is closer to the interest of the creation, so to say. There is something you said earlier that I, I can relate a lot uh, to. You said uh, um, 
the feeling and the intuition come first and then the reasoning faculty sort of follows from that and then tries to give words to it and communicate it, even communicate it to ourselves, tell ourselves in words what we feel or what we intuit. I can relate to that even in my um, work on philosophy. Um, I, I clearly see that the intuition of the answer to a question or a problem I'm struggling with, struggling with, that the intuition comes first. And only thereafter, I can reason it out, sort of kick the tires through reason and say, okay, now this, this holds water, this stands up to, to scrutiny, uh, but the intuition comes first. And I wonder whether this perhaps isn't the case for everybody, even Rebecca herself, uh, that the intuition comes first and then we sort of reason it out and then we think that it came from reason. But in fact, it has a different origin. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, and no, I think uh, as earlier mentioned, we have not been taught to rely on our intuition. So we often go uh, send it overboard. All right, this sums up uh, our summary and views uh, on, on, on the first episode. Uh, we will move now to our fantastic conversation with uh, Professor Donald Hoffman uh, on competition. You can think of your body in that sense as quadrillions of organisms, separately. each cell is an organism, that have agreed to cooperate, not to fight. Cancer are, are cells that have sort of um, decided to break the pact. And several things came through in our conversation with Donald that I think, and I, I'm sure you think so too, uh, uh, Fred, uh, are uh, key, are central uh, to our ability to progress as a culture, closer to ourselves, closer to, to truth. Um, one of the things he always emphasizes, and which I think it, it, it's, you know, although he has had math to prove it, uh, he has had all kinds of simulations to prove it, it is something that we should all intuit, <laughs> and that links back to the first episode, which is that perception does not offer us direct access to reality. We think uh, that what we see, what we hear, what we smell, taste, and touch, the screen of our perception, we think that it's some kind of transparent windshield into the world as it, as it is in itself. But of course, that's not what evolution would have done. Evolution would have created a dashboard of dials for us to collect information about the external world in a way that favors survival and not in a way that favors transparent access to the truth of the matter. Uh, so what we see, hear, and smell, these are just dials uh, on a dashboard. And the world as it is in itself it's something different. Uh, it's as different as the storm outside. It's different from the instrument panel of a pilot flying a plane through the storm. And I think this is a key insight because it tells us that what we call matter surrounding us, it is not the world as it is in itself. It's not fundamental. It's just an appearance. It's the dials. It's the virtual reality. The world as it is in itself is not material. And it's probably more like uh, mental processes, conscious processes, even though not our personal uh, mental processes. And uh, although I think this is something we should all apprehend very intuitively, uh, Professor, Professor Hoffman, 
Uh, I'll call him Don. He's a friend. <laughs> so I'll not pretend not to know him. Uh, uh, Don always emphasizes that we should have a mathematically precise theory. And that's a bit of a concession to our current uh, cultural ethos, that uh, um, unless you can dress everything up in mathematical equations, it's not really true. Um, that's not what Don means. What Don means is you have to be precise uh, in order to, for others to be able to judge whether you are right or whether you are wrong. You have to specify precisely what you say. And I agree with that, but there is an intuitive flow behind it or underneath it that suggests that things are not real unless we can model them. There, I'm partly sympathetic with that because of education, but I'm not fully uh, on board with that. And then finally, Professor Hoffman, Don, uh, drove to a conclusion that I think uh, is music uh, to your ears, uh, Fred, which is that um, what we call scarcity, lack, that um, these things may too be artifacts of the virtual reality, of the instrument panel, that in the, wor in the world as it is in itself, there may be no scarcity, in which case scarcity would be an illusion. That, that's very close to your thought, uh, isn't it, uh, Fred? If we see uh, the finite world as an expression of infinity, then it is a it, that's a universe of matter, matter that expresses itself from high densities deep in the earth, for example, to uh, to, to the most subtle fields of energy at the edges of our universe. But if we would, for example, would give every form of matter, whatever, dense or not, the name of particle or cell or whatever, we would see that everything coexists next to all the other elements. So it is a collection, an ever-moving collection that goes from high density to low density and that we can observe or connect with through our human senses, for example, or even beyond it. So if I relate it to the subject of scarcity, then I say scarcity is a view, in this case, a human view, where you want to see that something lacks. But that means that you first make a choice in your mind what lacks. So that's a choice and that you already take out of the whole. So in that way, I try to say, yes, it is an attitude. But if you try to get everything in your mind, you could always also come uh, to a different conclusion. Eh? To scarcity relates competition, but you can also say, well, let us, let us cooperate and compare with care in order to share with care. So that what you once have may have seen as scarcity is a impetus to deal differently with scarcity from the understanding that everything is inclusive. Don's key point is that um, evolution by natural selection, which of course entails competition, creatures competing against each other for, for say, limited resources, that it is that competition that leads to the virtual reality, it, that leads to the notion that we do not see the world as it is in itself, because evolution would have given us a dashboard, an instrument panel, and not a transparent windscreen into the world, so we could compete better and survive. That, that's the, the key drive of his argument, that evolution by natural selection does, it does not offer us a window into the truth. 
It just helps us survive. And then as a consequence of that argument, uh, he also says, okay, but if then we are living in a virtual reality, if we are flying by instrument, so to say, without a glass windshield to see the world outside as it really is, um, then scarcity itself could be just an artifact of the dashboard, of the virtual reality. Uh, but th that leads to a sort of a, a, a circle, doesn't it? Because to some extent, evolution uh, uh, leverages competition, uh, competition for resources. Um, but evolution may also lead to the illusion of scarcity, which is the basis uh, of competition. Could this be a sort of vicious circle in which one thing uh, gives rise to the other and uh, circul circularly. So could scarcity be the result of a kind of circular process in nature that uh, in fact is not really there? It's just an artificial conclusion from a certain dynamics of the system. I agree. So in the, it, it, it's, it, it is the, the, the snake that bites in the end its own tail. So if, if you were, what is happening if you would allow it to meet with your ever higher consciousness through developing consciousness, you will see that it has been there perhaps to serve you to make, yeah, in life, in a material life, more efficient choices to survive. But when you go through the layer of survival, you may discover something else. And what I mentioned in the beginning, by lowering down your brain rhythm, you will see, for example, that you become more conscious, that you need less food, that nurturing comes also through drinking water and uh, taking in air on on an on a efficient way and that you will find fulfillment in your life that doesn't express itself linearly, but transcendent. One of the things, uh, I, I always have a metaphor that um, I keep it in my mind, a metaphor you told me years ago that I, I found fantastic. Um, in our culture today, we seem to even be educated for competing. You know, children go to piano lessons, at least in Europe, very early on. And when they're five, in order to, you know, make, to, to, how to say, to be better than their peers in primary school. And, and then we, we go through life competing. We compete at school, compete at university, compete in our jobs, uh, compete against our peers for a, for a partner. It seems to be built into our culture. Uh, but one day you told me, look, the, 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 the pure and natural impetus that we associate with competition is actually something else. And you used that metaphor of uh, playing ping pong, which resonated with me a lot because I played ping pong a lot when I was a kid. And, uh, and, um, and I played when I played ping pong as a kid, I didn't want to win. I wanted to keep the ball in play because that's how I would have the most fun. I wanted to push my opponent to, to his or her edge but uh, not win, because the moment I would score a point, the game would stop and it wouldn't be fun. <laughs> no, indeed. And that, that, that I, uh, I don't know, but at a certain moment I saw that, that indeed in the very beginning, and I didn't talk about ping pong with tennis, I, I realized that tennis was, was developed to express 
the fun and the pleasure of the continuation of the flow. So you together are a cycle. You do develop the game in such a way that you help the other person to stretch so that that person can return the ball instead of break the cycle. And at a later stage, I don't know, I often make a little joke, I don't know if you've seen it, but they award or reward the person that breaks the cycle. So the person that doesn't do the continuum, and, and that is the, the example for me how we have arranged our society. It's by exclusion and those people that are successful in excluding others being in their mind or the world's mind number one, they are awarded. But it always implies a winner and a loser. Look at how the loser will feel. I mean, the society cannot have all winners to the detriment of how many losers does that go? What is the lost energy in, in so many people by creating that system? Okay, these are our reflections uh, on competition. And then we had a discussion with uh, uh, Jennifer Hornsby uh, about language. If you're a student of language or linguistics or philosophy of language or whatever, you take this phenomenon of exchange of information, then realize a whole lot more can go on than simply exchange of information, commands can be given, etc., etc., feelings expressed. Um, but of course, that's never all that's going on when language is used. Yeah. According to Jennifer, language is something objective because it is shared. We sort of share meaning, uh, share intent by giving words uh, to it. And that sharing renders uh, it objective, renders language uh, objective. And this drive to objectivity relates to, to reasoning, to the, to, the, to the mental faculty, as you refer uh, to it, uh, Fred. And the Jennifer argues then that uh, although language sort of you know, stems from us as subjective beings, it is, it is the collective character of that, of that sharing of meaning that renders it objective and not purely personal and idiosyncratic. Um, she goes to the point of saying that uh, uh, insofar as uh, language sort of dresses experience, even our consciousness uh, insofar, again, insofar as it's dressed by language, even our consciousness is not really only an inner world, it becomes externalized through language, and, and therefore it is rendered objective. Uh, so there is this push towards objectification of what is by birth subjective, uh, this movement from the inside to the outside, uh, which takes the form uh, of language. And, and she goes on to say that uh, the meaning of words and language structures, because of this objectification, that meaning isn't really relative, that there is a absolute meaning to things that are said, provided they are said, of course, correctly. Um, I think this view is very uh, compatible at least. It sort of evokes our present cultural ethos that attempt to render everything objective and therefore reliable. Uh, it echoes our mistrust of subjectivity, of our idiosyncratic 
personal intuition and, and feelings. So this movement from the inside to the outside, from the personal to the collective, from the subjective to the objective, you see that again, not only in the first episode, but in the third episode, perhaps especially in the third episode. Um, I respect that view, Fred, but my personal view is that um, it goes too far. It may be, I, I don't use this word pejoratively, but it may be in a sense naive, um, because my own experience uh, in philosophy, for instance, is that the meaning we give to words uh, is very difficult to objectify. Um, we sometimes miscommunicate a lot, talk past each other, because our respective understandings of what particular words mean differ. And therefore, it's not quite uh, objective. Um, maybe it, words would be objective in an ideal world, but I think we are very far away from that uh, ideal world. And uh, I also feel that um, this seeming a tendency in our culture, and now I'm not speaking about Jennifer only, but this, this seeming tendency in our culture to crush the subjective, to crush the idiosyncratic, it may translate into an attempt to crush reality because subjectivity is the only carrier of reality we know and can know, uh, isn't it? Uh, well, how do you see this? Yeah, thank you, Bernardo. Um, while you were talking, I thought about how important it is when we speak to listen to the intonation of the spoken words. Uh, the way I express myself um, hopefully is a way of how I feel on one side and in the meantime see it as a means to reach out to you and later on to the audience and build a bridge, build a bridge of communication. So in a way I see language and the inclusion of words and, and numbers in language as a tool to communicate information. As such they are, yeah, they are just part of my toolkit and of other, other people's toolkit. Very useful, but beyond the language I can, I can sense more ways of communicating than just using the words and the intonation of the words sometimes smells or uh, expressions in faces or gestures with hands it all helps to yeah bring people closer or further away we we run a big risk in our culture doesn't we to to lose a lot of things in translation from feeling to words we, we, we judge people by what they say as opposed to what they mean or how they feel from the inside, uh, don't we? Yeah, that's even another subject. And as, as you know better than I do, you can uh, follow all kinds of courses, how you can hide yourself and, and manipulate people with your thoughts because you want to serve a certain interest, which is completely... Uh, may of may be disassociated from you because you play a role losing your own uh, authenticity and it links back to our discussion on competition because if we focus on what people say as opposed to what they mean 
if we spot a flaw in their linguistic argument line, we seize on that to crush, the, uh, crush and invalidate uh, the other person because we sort of want to be better. We want to compete and win. Uh, and, and in the process of doing that, uh, the real meaning, what the intended meaning, the, the, the inner reality that tried to express itself outside, it just flies over our heads. We miss out on that. And I, I fear that we may be missing out on so much that we would panic if we really understood how much we are missing out on. Yeah, and indeed, uh, we have a choice well, in the, in the uh, example you just used when you try to abuse the person that in its words apparently doesn't reflect expressing the meaning you can also have the choice, do I hear this correctly? Because I see you may mean something else. And if it's in my interest or not, doesn't matter. Please try again and I'll help you uh, to express better what you meant to say. And you would be enriched by that because... That, that's the different attitude. You have a choice, you know. And it also links back to the very first episode on, on you know, reason. Uh, knowledge through reason, um, which is that um, I sense that in our culture, um, in, our, in the ethos of our culture today, we think that whatever cannot be articulated <clears throat> in logical words, whatever cannot be described in words or explained in words, then it doesn't exist we think that whatever does exist has to be amenable to description or articulation through words. And whatever you cannot describe in words, the ineffable, then it doesn't exist. But there is no logic behind this link, is there? Who, who, whoever said that what cannot be said cannot exist? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, two steps I wanted to make with all of us and that go back, let's go back to the childhood when the child doesn't have the use of words it still exists and it communicates information through all the senses, doesn't have the vocabulary yet. And as long as we respect the love in the child and in ourselves, we can definitely communicate and think of the other end of life where often people develop Alzheimer's and they cannot express themselves well anymore. Still, consciousness is running through them and we want we are not going to exclude these people. They suffer from something, they're different. And yes, we try to keep them in the loop of our society. So often they lose the words and still are aware. And it would be really sad if we would just uh, ignore these two groups. And their fate could be ours tomorrow. Uh, and then presumably we wouldn't like other people to think that uh, because we cannot word things, <laughs> we cannot give language to things, that we no longer have an inner life, right? Uh, pr presumably, you wouldn't, we wouldn't like that to be done to us. And, and yet we have this tendency in our culture, you know, this drive for reliability and objectivity, which sort of emphasizes um, the, 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 the rational faculty and language over feeling, uh, subjective impression, intuition, uh, it runs the risk of eliminating the only carrier of reality we know, which is our own ineffable subjectivity, right? We sort of 
run a, a very serious risk um, in the way we are going with our culture today. Yeah, and then what I'm thinking of now, bring a master in, uh, say, a Chinese language uh, together with a Latino, that's a master in the Latino language, bring them for one week on an island. <laughs> they have two fantastic languages, but uh, <laughs> won't be able to use them. And then we went on to have a fantastic conversation with uh, Mo Galdat. I, I personally enjoyed that conversation a lot. I know from you, we talked afterwards. I know that you enjoyed it as well. We both have a, a very, very good impression of Mo. I think he's doing uh, important work uh, in the world today. And that discussion was about growth. The question really is, how much of it is enough? And what's the price we pay for it? How much is enough is a very, very interesting question. Do we need an iPhone 13? And if the, if the, if the price of the iPhone 13 is going to be horrendous impact on the planet and your stress level and your life and so on, maybe then we don't. And it links back to what we just talked about, which is this tendency to objectify everything at the cost of our subjectivity, which is the only carrier of reality we have. And what uh, Mo said is that often what is most valuable cannot be measured. In other words, cannot be quantified or uh, objectified, because what we do with words, we also do with numbers. And especially in the hard sciences, if you cannot model something with numbers, then it doesn't exist. It's not part of nature. It's not reality. Um, so I detect here this, the, the same tendency that, that, that we discussed about the three, three previous episodes, this idea that growth is about an increase in some numerical quantity. And that's precisely what Mo said uh, we shouldn't do because we will miss out on what is most valuable. If we, if we do this, if we go after only the things that uh, can be measured and whose uh, numeric value increases. He also said, uh, uh, at least suggested, that um, you know, our consumerist society, you know, riding on capitalism, um, focuses precisely on this numerical growth, you know, growth of a return on investment, growth in your bank account saldo, uh, growth in the number of partners you've had uh, in your life. Um, and he, he said that, okay, if we continue to pursue these growing quantities, this will come at the cost of the planet because the planet is not growing. <laughs> Whether you measure growth uh, quantitatively or qualitatively, the planet is not growing. So a society or a civilization within it cannot keep on growing forever unless and until we expand to some to some other planet. Um, so for him, that was a big risk. And I completely agree with him. Um, capitalism, as we implement it today, uh, emphasizes this notion of growth so much that there is even this adage that companies that don't grow are dead companies. I mean, where is this going? Because the planet is not growing. Uh, if we have a system that depends on numerical growth only, uh, we are walking straight uh, into oblivion. So for, for, for Mo, we should focus also, or perhaps predominantly, on qualitative growth. Growth in happiness, 
Happiness is a quality, not a quantity. Uh, uh, we should look at, you know, psychological qualities as opposed to purely material growth. The growth in the quality of our relationships, the growth in the quality of our experiences, of the events of our lives. And he suggested that happiness has to do with this growth in quality, that uh, if uh, uh, the qualitative result of something is higher than our expectations about it, then we are happy. So for him, this whole thing is is a qualitative psychological dynamics and not a numerical game. And I know, Fred, that uh, you uh, wholeheartedly agree with it, uh, doesn't you? Yes, I do. And um, yeah, I think indeed in the whole business world, growth is a word that has been hijacked from natural growth, growth that happens in nature at the patient time of nature. We cannot speed it up nor slow it down. Nature has its own rhythm. But we hijack growth indeed in a quantitative sense with the detrimental effects on the real growth. So the whole process of conception, growth, decaying and death, we are disturbing by intervening in that natural cycle. And by doing so, we miss out indeed, as you described in reciting Bo, a Mo, is that <laughs> we miss out on the quality of ex the experience of happiness, of the experience of joy, of the experience of forgiving, of the experience of sharing, all those lovely things that we miss because our mental faculty is so occupied that we don't allow our feeling faculty those wonderful experiences. You've been a very successful business person. Um, according to the values and prejudices of our society today, you are a very, very, very successful person. Because I'm not aware of that. But this is this is what I wanted to ask you. Um, if one would look at your bank account, people would say, "Well, you're very successful because you you've grown a lot in an, on a numerical uh, uh, basis." But you have had the experience of it, so you have authority to say it. Does that quantitative growth leave lead to happiness in your life? For sure not. That, that alone. For sure not. So getting rich is not the answer, is it? No, I think it's important to, of course, uh, when you're poor and you're more or less excluded from the economic system, it's a different answer. So yes, I can only answer for myself. So I, if I would give an advice to people now in living in the Netherlands where I do live, is, you know, stop when you have your first, first two or three million, then it's enough, you know, I mean, but for most people, this is a dream, right? Even a huge, huge, yeah, dream. So, yeah, money doesn't make me happy, but the lack of money can make you very unhappy. We have this idea that uh, if only we get that amount of money, then all problems would be solved. But uh, based on my own experiences, I mean, I'm not nearly as successful uh, as you. Uh, but I'm, I'm not a poor person. And my own experience in that sort of rat race is that uh, at some point you realize that you're chasing ghosts. Once you have enough to live safely and comfortably, 
the next step is usually a, a ghost. And when you catch it, you run your fingers through it and you realize that it was nothing. Uh, it, it doesn't make you happy anymore. No, and also now that you talk about it, when I go through the process of life, yes, in my earlier part of life, I was less uh, rested in myself, less secure. So I was, although I didn't want to tell or say or be honest about it, but I was more dependent on confirmation from the out outside world. And the more I developed my consciousness, the more I had a chance to be be, be more authentic and rest more in myself and be less dependent on all those other things that other people so often are keep on being dependent on. And you alluded first that um, our the word growth was sort of, um, we, we got it from nature, um, but then we sort of, um, we abused it. <laughs> we made it mean something that it didn't originally mean. And the, the image I have in my mind is a seed, right? Or an acorn that grows into an oak, but that's qualitative growth, right? It's not only quantitative growth. You see, uh, it's the quality of the transformation of the forms and the vital stuff going through the system and so that we can enjoy the fruits of beauty and of nutrition. So if we, if we say, okay, we don't need to grow our bank account saldo uh, beyond a certain value, um, what, how should we grow then? What is this qualitative growth that uh, we should pursue? Well, this perhaps is also a little bit surprising what I'm going to say. The growth in essence for me is the growth in the sense of the development of consciousness. For example, to understand that the um, cycle of conception, growth, decay and death in itself doesn't conceive, grow, decay nor dies. And that indicates that there is a power beyond that cycle. And that, in my experience, is a huge loving power, which many people call God. And that is the ultimate understanding in my way, in my view, and based on some profound experience as well. So growth in nature, it's not only the, the growth in size of an acorn into an oak, but it's also the decline of the acorn. It is also the ultimate death of the acorn. And we sort of excluded that asp those aspects of growth from our cultural notion of what growth means, right? Yeah, we, it's not so pleasant to talk about death or decay. So we lose interest. So we all focus on young, on growing. And, but that's not reality in totality. So the real growth is in the understanding of the certain or the different stages of life and death. So we grow into older selves, we grow into death qualitatively, but we don't see that as growth anymore. Well, I hope it will return back on stage. <laughs> and then we will always grow throughout life. <laughs> Fred, this has been a fantastic journey uh, with you, first and foremost, uh, with the four guests uh, uh, we've had. I hope you, the listener, uh, has enjoyed it as well. I hope you have 
grown uh, from these experiences. Uh, I certainly have. I suspect uh, Fred uh, has grown a little bit uh, too from this. And uh, I hope to see you next time uh, with some other series. Thank you very much and take care. Yeah, and I want to thank you, Bernardo, my friend, very much for having such a wonderful dialogue together. I hope uh, our audience uh, will enjoy it and has enjoyed it after this, uh, seeing this and also want to thank very much the wonderful team at uh, IAI for facil facilitating us. Thank you so much and miles of smiles to everybody. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen and tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.